Except well, I think they're all behind closed doors. Back <laughs> well, welcome tonight. Um, it's great to be back here, ready to uh, to start again uh, as we continue this "How to Read and Understand the Bible." It's been a whirlwind week uh, for uh, for me, and I've been really looking forward to uh, tonight. And got some really interesting things I want to show you by way of introduction. But let me mention a couple of announcements as uh, usual. Uh, yesterday, I was privileged to do a. Uh, uh, interview on Christian Underground News Network, and the topic was, Should Christians Get the COVID Vaccine? So I want to encourage you to watch that. It's still up at notbyworks.org, and uh, you can either click on podcast or it's right there on the banner. Um, and spread the word, spread the spread it around to people that might be uh, interested. It's getting, uh, getting some good views. And then uh, also I want to remind you that the free eight-part uh, series, What in the World is Going On, is still up there and uh, still getting some views. So I know you guys have all seen it because we did it right here in this very room uh, for eight consecutive weeks. But um, we want to encourage you to get that information. It's got a lot of good information about what is going on in the world and about the World Economic Forum, the Great Satanic Reset, those types of things. Is that only on the DVDs? Or is that on the nope, totally channel? free. You can watch it right there on the website. It's also on our Rumble channel, but the easiest way to get to all of our materials is just at notbyworks.org. So it's not something you purchase. It's just right there. Just go to videos, and then under videos, you'll see what in the world is going on, and there they go. So I just want to mention those two announcements, and then uh, by way of introduction, and it's a shame that uh, the heirs kids aren't here. They're a little bit under the weather, but you guys can give them, give them some kudos uh, next time you see them either Sunday or Wednesday. But I got an email from a, a listener uh, in Las Vegas and, uh, who commented, among other things, in their email about how smart those kids are that sit on the front row. <laughs> and they said, this was their quote. I thought it was so cool. They said, you know, if that was a TV show, they would be the stars, and they would. They would be. They ask some great questions and uh, keep me on my toes, and uh, and it's a tribute, obviously, to their mom and dad, uh, Jeff and Kara, for uh, for raising them right. So keep the questions coming. Uh, you don't have to be a kid to ask a question. You can you can ask a question. Even you, Kelly, you can ask a question. Um, all right. So the whole premise of this uh, series on how to read and understand the Bible is, you know, you sit down with your Bible, which is either a print Bible, like in the good old days, or a digital Bible, like a lot of people have today. But in any event, you're sitting down and you're going to read the Bible. Well, how do you interpret it correctly? That's what we're talking about. And we have, uh, we're, we're going to be getting into a lot of uh, real nuts and bolts and some principles of Bible study methods and rules of interpretation, things like that. Uh, but we're kind of coming at it slowly and, and coming at it with, you know, at the macro level, talking about some principles about what is the Bible, why does it matter that we, you know, want to interpret it correctly and so forth. And I thought tonight I would illustrate the importance, before we get to our nightly, our weekly exercise, we're going to do that in a moment, uh, but, but I want to illustrate the importance of uh, correctly handling the Word of God, and what happens when you abandon uh, the truth uh, of God's Word. And this is something that actually Nancy uh, sent me some time ago, and it came to my mind tonight, and I thought this would be the perfect illustration. So there is a seminary that some of you may know of here in Denver called ILIF, if I'm saying that right. ILIF? ILIF? Is it with long eyes? Okay. And um, 
this was started in the first part of the 20th century and like many schools back then was well grounded in the word of God but not anymore as we shall see uh, so notice what uh, their about page says on the school website ILIF is creating a new expansive set of offerings that are broadly accessible to an ever-expanding community of learners and focused on engaging the moral discourse. All right, let's just stop there. Engaging the moral discourse. Well, based upon what standard of morality? I mean, there's no moral discourse. It's not like you get around, uh, sit around a table as a group and vote on what's moral and what's not. The moral discourse is called the Word of God, the Bible, right? But then it goes on even worse in the context of multiple cultural constructions of human meaning. So in other words, meaning is a construction of humanity. It's not inherent within the language. And so we talked about how language was created by God. God spoke the world into existence, that language predates mankind. Uh, and meaning must have, uh, words must have meaning uh, inherently. And, but not anymore. These days, meaning is a multicultural uh, construction. And then if you read on, it says, For more than 125 years, Ilif has been at the forefront of theological education. Well, I would beg to differ. I, I don't think they're at the forefront. They may be at the forefront of apostate theological education. Um, it is recognized nationally and internationally for its emphasis on peace, justice, and ethics. Notice no reference to the Bible. Uh, founded in 1892 by Colorado Seminary, now the University of Denver, and incorporated as an independent institution in 1903, ILIF has been on the forefront of graduate theological education. They're connected, by the way, to the United Methodist Church. Now, it says, as one of the best theological schools, again, what does theology mean? We talked about this the very first week. Anybody remember? Study of God, exactly. You know, Theos, God, logos, a word, a word about God, or the study of God. And how can you be one of the self-proclaimed best theological schools in the nation if you don't take what God has revealed about himself seriously and, and as the only standard, right? Um, the school offers a diverse community in beautiful Colorado, Denver, Colorado, setting that is supportive, challenging, progressive. Now, progressive is one of those watchwords that you need to be aware of. Whenever you see the word progressive, think liberal, okay? just means we've progressed a, away from these archaic old school standards and we're much more enlightened now. We're progressive, right? So, uh, so to tell you what this best theological school in the nation produces, uh, let's look at some of their, or before we look at some of their product, uh, some of their students, uh, let's look at their core values. I just picked out three that caught my attention. First of all, we value our progressive theological heritage. What does that mean? Well, that they've changed a lot since 1903. In 1903, they valued the Word of God as the only standard for morality. Not so anymore. Uh, and it finds expression in emerging forms of pedagogy and practice. Emerging forms. See, it's always this shifting standard. 
interacting with the culture. Another one that caught my eye, we align ourselves with social justice, equity, and wholeness. What's that? Equality. E what did I say? Equity? Equality. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's really small on my screen, and my eyes are really bad. Uh, but absolutely, this is, uh, you know, this is their core value. Why would they mention this unless they have shunned the Bible? It's all about you know, social justice. And then finally, uh, we celebrate theological discernment. See, there's no true north. There's no established anchor to which you can you know, run to to find the absolute standard of truth. It's all about human-based discernment originating in your own mind. And it's about, again, this discourse, sitting around a table, coming up. Uh, so it, it should not surprise you then that some of their proudest students, and this is all public domain stuff, this was from their website, this is from their Facebook page, um, Isle of School of Theology, congratulations to the newly elected student senate leaders. Looking forward to supporting and working with them in the new academic year. Well, let's look at some of these key leaders that they brag about in the public domain. How about Zachary Herzog, who's the president, along with this next person I'm going to show you. Zach is a third-year student. By the way, notice that they put their pronouns in parentheses. In this case, it's a he, him. Not sure, who knows, if he, him was always a he, him, but he's a he, him on this post anyway. Uh, Zach is a third-year student. He is dual enrolled in the MDiv and MAPCSC programs. Originally from Denver, Zach now lives in Seattle, where he works at Salt House, an ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, where he is leading their new youth group and LBG, LGBTQ plus ministries. Who would have thought that the Christian church in America would get to the place where you hire a staff member to be in charge of LGBTQ ministries? But it gets worse. Here's Kendall Grayland, who prefers to go by they, them. Uh, originally, he's, I don't even know what, whether Kendall is a male or a female. So, but Kendall, we'll say, uh, is a fourth-year MDiv student, originally from Columbia, South Carolina, now live in West Plains, Montana. And they work at an inclusive Wiccan church. How bad of a church is it? when inclusive isn't even the worst part of the church description. Um, it's Wiccan, which of course is Satan worshiping, right? Um, and then uh, here's the secretary of the student council, or I call, they call it the student's uh, senate. Again, go, prefers to go by they, them. Another fourth year uh, MDiv student living in Alexandria, Virginia. They're Jewish and practiced Judaism into their teenagers, but encountered paganism in the mid-90s and have been following that path since then. Dash is one of the initiates. Remember we talked about that word when we talked about secret societies? Initiates of the Firefly House in Washington, D.C. And they, we don't even have to expose what it is because they come right out and tell you. It's a place uh, that emphasizes Wiccan, witches, polytheists, and other magic workers and also works with the house to offer public pagan religious and educational events. So this is what happens when you abandon the Word of God as the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And again, I, I make no apology for calling these people out. The Apostle Paul certainly 
calls out people by name when they have departed from the Word of God, and they put this on their website as if they're bragging about it. And I'm here to tell you, it's shameful. We are, we are witnessing the death of shame <laughs> in, anymore in our uh, culture when so-called one of the best theological institutions in the nation produces this as their product. And uh, it's really borderline blasphemous, if you ask me. Does that mean they're all Calvinists? Yeah. <laughs> Does that mean they're all Calvinists? You're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> You're trying to get me in trouble. I got asked a, a question on a radio interview today. Fortunately, it was on a commercial break off the air, and the guy said, so are you Calvinist or Arminian? And I said, neither. <laughs> so uh, he didn't appreciate my answer. But, uh, but anyway, no, nothing like this, obviously. I know you were saying that in jest. While we disagree with Calvinists and their understanding of how to interpret Scripture and specifically their understanding of the Gospel, they at least value the Word of God as the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. They're good uh, men and women who hold to those views. We just have an honest disagreement and an important one. Don't let me you know, downplay it. It's an important issue because it deals with the Gospel. But it in no way rises to the level of uh, Satan, overt Satan worship. So let's go ahead and dive in with our case study tonight. And I want to turn to a familiar passage, 2 Chronicles 7.14. And uh, tell me what you think uh, this means. What, what do you think of? What have you heard about this passage? How have you heard it quoted? In what context? And so forth. Well, he's referring to Israel. Okay, you know it's referring to Israel. So <laughs> why are you laughing? Is he not referring to Israel? Sorry. No, he's totally Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you're right. So, before we break it down, though, what else? What are some other thoughts? Yeah, Beth. Yeah. A very powerful part of his presentation in every stop. Yeah, so the comment was that back during the 2020 election, Franklin Graham, during his Decision America tour, used this verse as a key verse that was cited at every one of his stops as part of his you know, messages and presentation, which, as I'm going to explain, and as we've kind of already touched on, is, doesn't necess is not necessarily wrong. Okay, It's how you use it and whether you handle it correctly in context and explain what it means in context. Uh, anybody else? Yeah. A lot of posts on social media, people are putting this as, you know, the problems that we're having in America because we're not following this. Correct. Yeah, a lot of people will post this verse uh, in specific reference to America. And in so doing, they are, uh, again, absent any you know, commentary or explanation if they just sort of cite the verse and then start talking about how believers today need to repent and pray and turn from their wicked ways so God will heal our land here in America. What they're doing is identifying themselves as my people, right? So as we have seen with other examples the last couple of weeks, when you see pronouns here, you know, you need to look at the antecedent. So we see several pronouns here. First of all, the possessive pronoun my 
Now, in this English transverse, translation, it's capitalized. I'm using the New King James Version. So you know that's talking about God, and indeed God is speaking here. And again, we haven't looked at the context yet. We're just kind of making some observations about this verse that should be self-evident to any careful reader and then should prompt you to go and look at the context because you have information that is not contained in this verse but is alluded to. You with me? So he says, uh, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, so themselves, again, is a pronoun, a reference to my people. Well, who are those people? Um, we, we really need to look at the context. We can tell, even in the New King James, that this picks up in the middle of a quote from God because it's not the if is not capitalized. So this is mid-sentence. Remember, the Bible verses, verse numbers that we now have in our Bibles were not there originally. They came along centuries later. Um, so this is mid-sentence, and it would make sense, you know, especially since we're dealing with the words of the Almighty Creator, to go back and say, sorry to interrupt, Lord, what else did you have for us in this quote? But anyway, let's continue reading on, because this is a very uh, widely known verse and particularly used around uh, 4th of July and other uh, political contexts where you're trying to call Christians in America back to God. Um, but he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, whose wicked ways? My people. Who are my people? Well, we know because we've already identified them for those of you that know the context, as Israel, the Jews, uh, but we wouldn't know that if we didn't look at the context. But uh, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, you know, this was, you know, in the context here. Well, who, who knows? Anybody know the context, broadly speaking? Gary, is that a... I just looked ahead. Good. No, that's what I was hoping you did. Okay. Well, Solomon, God's talking to Solomon about establishing the temple. Correct. Yep. This is the dedication of the temple. Solomon's temple, the first temple, right? And um, so their land is the land of Israel, the promised land. Okay? So, and, and, and by the way, that... in to put a historical time stamp on it, we're dealing with roughly a thousand years, nine hundred years before a Christ, the time of Solomon. So I'm pretty sure the United States of America was not around in roughly 930 BC. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. So the point is, as we're going to see again and again and again and again. The Bible was communicated to us through language. Language has certain inherent, um, non-negotiable rules in order for it to be effective. If you throw those rules out the window, then you cannot communicate. And yes, the Bible is unique in that it is a divine book with ultimately a divine author. It was uh, superintended over by the Holy Spirit who carried holy men of God along as they wrote. It is infallible, inerrant, inspired, all of those things. 
but the language in which it was communicated to us is no different than any other language. It's not like it's some mystical language that breaks all the rules. It still must be understood using grammar and syntax and in historical meanings of words and, and so forth. And so uh, when, we, when we read these uh, verses or any verse in the Bible, we have to understand what did it mean when the quill hit the sheepskin? What was it in these words that the creator of the universe was wanting to communicate to mankind? And then once you understand that meaning, then you can expand from that to its significance. And that's where if people want to use this passage as an example, historically, of a time when God reminded a particular nation at a particular time in a particular context of history that if they will return to Him, it will go well with them. But if they rebel against Him, it won't and then make application about that principle to other lands, not just America, but frankly any land, and then bring in some cross-references from, say, Proverbs or other wisdom literature like Psalms where it talks about, you know, blessed is the nation that, whose God is the Lord, or righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Clearly a broader application, right? So... You know, it's, it's not wrong in and of itself that someone like Franklin Graham, an evangelical leader, and you know I'm no fan of Franklin Graham's for a lot of other reasons, but I just want to be fair. I don't know how he was using it, but it's not at all uh, necessarily uncommon for people to use this context and when properly handled and properly interpreted and explained, apply it to other situations. I can remember back when I was in college, um, my aunt, my dad's uh, sister, uh, was always really heavily involved in national politics. She, for example, she was Reagan's personal appointment secretary, sat right, out the, right outside the Oval Office. And when I was just a kid, this was back when you could still go to the White House, we got an after-hours tour and actually got to go in the Oval Office. And, uh, but then when Reagan got near the end of his second term, she left and went to work for Jack Kemp, who at the time was HUD director, but then he ran, if you remember, in 88 as one of the Republican candidates, and she worked on his campaign, um, and uh, that's when Bush ended up winning. There were several uh, Republican candidates, because they held a debate, a Republican debate among the Republican candidates in Houston, and we got front row seats because my aunt was working for Jack Kemp. Um, and so I'm trying to remember who some of the other ones were. Buchanan. That's right, Buchanan, Dole, um, Kemp, I think Pete DuPont might have been one, and then, um, of course, Bush and, and Kemp and so forth. But anyway, I got uh, uh, to go up into the suite uh, at the hotel where the Kemp campaign was staying and meet Jack Kemp, shake his hand, and I gave him a verse of Scripture before the debate that night. Guess which verse it was? Second Chronicles 7.14. Now, I was a neophyte in studying the Word. Even though I was raised a Christian, I did not have the, the uh, knowledge about how to correctly handle the Word of God that I've had in the 30 or 40 years almost since. But, uh, uh, but it, that's very common. Basically what I was saying, and I remember he looked at it, and I hadn't written the verse out. I just wrote Second Chronicles 7.14. And he said, oh, what's that say? And I quoted it. And... Um, 
And uh, I don't remember what he said or if he said anything at that point. It was a very brief, just, you know, I, I was ushered in to shake his hand and then leave. Um, and then I remember I, I was riding the elevator back down to the lobby and, and William F. Buckley got on the elevator, <laughs> which was pretty cool. Um, but anyway, um, you know, basically the implication of me quoting that verse was, hey, you know, America needs to come back to its Christian roots and so forth. Boy, <laughs> what I'd give to have the America in 88 that we had then and, and, and instead of what we have today. Um, but anyway, so that there's, again, a lot of times it comes down to proper application and making sure you understand the singular meaning. So let's look at the context here. If we go back to verses 12 and 13, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. What place is he talking about? The temple. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among the people, when those things happen, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He wasn't talking here about a spiritual healing. He was talking about the healing from the pestilences and the droughts and the other problems that Israel always had to deal. You notice how many times in Israel's history, in the biblical record, they're dealing with problems with the land? Because they, did, they couldn't run to Walmart and buy processed food. <laughs> you know, they had to grow their own food, and, and they, their very uh, life depended on, uh, you know, being able to do that. So, uh, but then he goes on after, you know, saying in verse 14, and heal their land, he goes on, now my eyes, in verses 15 and 16, will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. What place? The temple. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as you know, the temple, just like the tabernacle in the wilderness, became the central place of God's presence. Not that God isn't omnipresent. He is and always has been. He's eternal in all of his attributes. But in the way in which Israel and the Jews interacted with God was through this human means, this human mediary, if you will, uh, and the priests and, and, and the Levites and so forth. So, um, so that's the context. So what, if I were going to use this passage today, uh, I would say we know historically from God's interactions with his people, his chosen nation Israel, that when they repent and turn back to God in sackcloth and ashes, that God responds favorably. And we also know that when they get away from God and don't follow His ways, it does not go well with them. They, they suffer the natural consequences as well as God's discipline. And we've seen that time and again through history. That's the way God operates. And we now understand as we come to the New Testament and the church age and the body of Christ the, the, the New Testament also has a lot to say about discipline. And we've talked about in, in the book of Hebrews how whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he chastens, right? So these are principles that we see playing out in a particular historical context that still apply today. Now, you know, the United States is not God's chosen nation. The capital is by no means the temple, at least not the temple of God. Um, and, and, and this is not his holy land. But we are a people, and the book of Proverbs, as I quoted earlier, talks about how uh, 
Sin is a reproach to any people, but righteousness will exalt a nation. And so we can tie those principles together. And on the authority of God's word, we can say we as a nation, uh, not because we're special or any unique thing, any nation that returns to the Lord and, and stands for morality, God will bless. Does that make sense? So it all comes down to this, you know, the concentric circles of context that we talked about uh, last time. Um, you know, you, you, the, the, the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error. And the, the real danger there is in pulling a verse out of context and making it, you know, making these wild applications is in, is in identifying my people. Now suddenly we are, you know, the people that God was speaking to back then. And you miss everything that was going on. By the way, we picked that up in the midst of a much broader statement. It's worth going back and reading and seeing all that God said to Israel and seeing what happened in the early days of Solomon's uh, reign. So again, the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error. Yeah? So, J.B., so as believers, we, are, we belong to God. Okay. So even with that said, in, this, in the context of this, we are not his people? We are, the question is, you know, are we God's people? Yes, we're God's people. Okay. But that's not who he's talking to there. I understand that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But does not the Holy Spirit speak to us through God's word? And I, I can look at this, and I have, and I've got my, note, I've got my note, notation by here from years ago, you know, about... God wants me to turn to Him. He wants me, when I'm in trouble, when I've done something that grieves Him, He wants me to turn back to Him. Okay, to, because I'm, I'm, I'm one of His people. And I've grieved Him. Yeah. So the comment is that, you know, um, this uh, uh, note that you have in your Bible reminds you that when we grieve God and we're one of his people, we should turn back to him. That is all absolutely true. But the student of Scripture, remember what we talked about about cutting straight, is to, 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 to make sure we correctly identify the meaning. And when the Spirit of God inspired the writer of Scripture 930-some-odd years before Christ to write those words, you know, he was not speaking to Ken, saying, Ken, it grieves me when you sin and you should turn back to me. That's not what that verse meant. What you're uh, referring to is the application or the significance of that verse as the Holy Spirit uses it in your life. But significance and application have to be tied to the original meaning or it's Katie bar the door. It's complete chaos. So obviously we all do the same thing. I've got uh, comments outside verses all up and down the margins in Proverbs because I've read that so many times. And implied within those comments is the context, the history, the literal grammatical historical aspect of that verse. In other words, you, you're not intending to write a commentary at that point. You're just having your devotion. The Spirit of God's leading you and you're writing a meaningful application but had you broadened it out and connected the dots you would have done just what we just did you would have said this is 
God, the creator of the universe, speaking to Solomon and the children of Israel on the occasion of the dedication of the temple, reminding them as a nation, the nation of Israel, that when things go bad for them, if they will turn to God, he will hear their prayer and heal their land, and so forth and so on. And you are extrapolating from that the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God, God is a faithful God, God loves his people, whoever that is, Israel, church, the nations, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, so since this is about Israel, and, and I care about Israel, but should I care about Israel? I mean, should I, I mean, this is for Israel. If they if they can't read it and understand it and follow it, that's on them, not me. Yeah. All right. Well, that's where we compare scripture with scripture. And uh, Paul says all scripture is God breathed and profitable. So knowing who the in immediate context and original recipients are is foundational for understanding the meaning. But just because it was written to Israel doesn't mean it doesn't have profit for us. How does it have profit? It has profit because it shows us that God is a covenant-keeping God, that God is a faithful God, and so forth. So we find that principle elsewhere in Scripture, throughout Scripture, and we stake our claim to that, and we apply that to whatever nation we're in, not just America, you know, but wherever, Costa Rica or Brazil or whatever, any believer in any nation should say, you know, if our nation would just turn to God, God would, would bless us because sin is a reproach to any nation. See, the difference is when you go to that passage in, in Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any nation, that, the, what's the meaning of that? Well, there, there is no context. It's a principle by the nature of the kind of literature that it is. It means that righteousness exalts any nation, and sin is a reproach to any people. That, I mean, there isn't... So that one is speaking to you as a member of whatever nation you're in at that moment, right? But Second Chronicles 7.14 isn't. It's not speaking to Ken. It's speaking to Israel. And then Ken, JB, Bob, Mary, Sally, Joe, all believers of all ages can take that passage, cut straight to the original meaning, and then say, now what does this tell us about our God? So the same thing is true from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation. We've got to say, what does this mean? And our tendency, and we all do it, I just shared an example of when I did it, uh, is to take these passages and short-circuit that process of meaning and then significance, and we go straight to significance. And we say, God spoke to me this. We make every you a me. See, see how that works? We make every you in Scripture a me. And every you in Scripture is not a me. And when you, when you fail to recognize who the you is, you're missing out on a rich meaning that God has and, and as it relates you know, to Israel specifically. Yeah. Okay, so you can study the Word and you can know the Word and you, can, you don't even have to be a Christian to study it. Are a Christian, you should take the truth that you find and apply it and live it. You said it. Yep. So and that's what Ken was saying, I believe. That's yeah. How he was doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so the comment is: as a Christian, we we should take God's word, you know, arrive at the meaning, and then apply it to our lives. And that's what we're about to get to in a second when we get to the five steps in the Bible study process. That's step five. So, and that's exactly what I was saying, Ken, is that, you know, we, when we're doing devotional reading, 
we, we have to just be careful to make sure that the application we write down is a, is a valid application based on the meaning of the text, which in this case it is. And had you had the time and the inclination and the space, you might have written down the context, the meaning, and then drawn a little arrow and say, okay, so how does this apply to my life? Well, it can apply innumerable ways. We all might read that same passage and come away with different things. You came away with the, the very valid application that it grieves God when we sin. I might come away with God as a covenant-keeping God. Or when someone else might come away with when we face natural disasters, God is able to heal those things and protect us from them, right? Because that's part of what was going on there too. So we can dissect the meaning once we arrive at the correct meaning and come up with all kinds of uh, applications. But uh, we've got to make sure that we distinguish between meaning, in which there's only one meaning, and uh, significance and application are two ways of saying the same thing. So I think I used the illustration a couple of weeks ago about the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And, you know, how often I've heard that passage taught as, you know, this passage teaches us how to avoid adultery. Well, no, it doesn't. It's got all kinds of stuff going on in the passage, but it has, it, it illustrates, perhaps, the principles that are taught elsewhere, but that's not the meaning of that passage. God didn't record that account in the book of Genesis with the explicit purpose of telling me in 2020 how to avoid adultery, or you or anybody else, right? He taught, it was about the, the preserving the line of Israel and putting Joseph in a place of power and authority and at the right time for such a time as this so that he could provide for his brothers and so on and so forth and, and the whole narrative of, of Israel starting with Abraham, J Isaac, Jacob and so forth. So uh, if we wanted to teach about how to avoid adultery, can you think of any passages that talk about fleeing from, you know, adultery? <laughs> well, yeah, the epistles which teach doctrine directly and tell us flee youthful lusts. So I would start there, and then I would say, you know, we have a historical example of someone who understood that principle, apparently, even though it hadn't been revealed yet, and they lived it out. And I would make it about the application of the principle, not the principle itself. So the, the meaning of 2 Chronicles 7.14 isn't that God is grieved by sin. That's an application. The meaning isn't that God's a covenant-keeping God. That's an application. The meaning is... God is telling Israel on the occasion of the dedication of the temple that when things go bad for them, let's go back and look at it. Uh, uh, when I shut up the heaven and there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or pestilence among my people, then, then, if you will humble yourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive your sin and heal your land. He's talking to Israel. Yeah. Because I, I have to ask this, because having sat under a number of pastors, okay, um, they certainly seem to pull out verses, and we'll pick on Franklin for a minute. Okay. Okay with me. Yeah, well, <laughs> and you know, and, and like pull it out. So, are are they? And what counts most in God's eyes, are they preaching the truth of the Bible? You know, are they, I mean, are they heretics? I mean, are they, not, are they offending God by 
you know, by how they present God's Word. So the comment is that a lot of pastors uh, will pull out a verse and take it out of context and, and apply it. Uh, absolutely, it makes for, you know, very appealing preaching. And most preaching is, that, is done that way. But we believe in what's called expository preaching. Expository means explaining the meaning. And so no matter how good it sounds or how appealing or motivational or how many people walk an aisle or how many people are uplifted, if it's not true to the text, it's not good preaching. It may not rise to the level of heresy because remember we talked about sometimes in mishandling the, the, the text and not cutting straight like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you arrive at a conclusion that is not theologically wrong, it's just not what that verse is talking about, right? So, and that's the case here. There are principles in Scripture that make it clear that any nation, which would include America, if they turn to God, God will bless them. Okay? Let's use that verse that, says, that actually says that. And then we could illustrate it here, but we need to make sure that we understand the meaning here has to do with Israel, the temple, Solomon, David's son, to whom the temple was promised, all of these types of things. And so I think, frankly, no pun intended, most, uh, most uh, preaching does short-circuit the process. We've, we've developed a, into a, a lazy group of preachers that, you know, frankly, a lot of them download their sermons off the Internet and just they're looking for, you know, what's the punchline rather than the setup. And... You know, what, what we need to be doing is striving to make sure that we handle it correctly and then we can apply it. We, it definitely needs to have the so what question. You know, otherwise you're just a seminary class. And a lot of Bible churches that brag about being expository preaching churches, in my mind, are also missing the boat because they're so fixated on the meaning that you feel like you're in a seminary class and they, they don't actually leave you with, okay, what do, what do I do with this? How is this going to change my life? What are some suggested applications? Now, obviously, the best uh, source of application is the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I know from 32 years of, of preaching that I can stand up in front of any crowd and preach the Word of God if I'm filled with the Spirit and I'm, I'm true to the text. And the Spirit of God can apply that in all kinds of ways that I never even dreamed of. But I at least try to leave you with a, a challenge or a takeaway or something that says, okay, here's some things that, that, that really should kind of be obvious in, in terms of applying this. But the Spirit of God is, I mean, we could sit here all day and tell stories about how a preacher might have preached a sermon on some passage and had nothing to do with what the Spirit of God was working on, on us with as we were sitting right there in that pew, right? But that, the Spirit can do that. We can't. We don't have the authority with language to take something that means one thing and completely twist it and have it mean something else. That's not, that's not cutting straight. So when the quill hit the sheepskin, there's one meaning. It's called singularity of meaning. We need to make sure we understand it and then seek to apply it to our lives. It's much easier to apply... Um, Epistolary literature, meaning like the letters of Paul and the general letters in the New Testament, because those are just sort of straightforward, do this commands. It's easier to, to apply wisdom literature like Proverbs, like we've talked about tonight. Uh, when you get into historical narratives like this, this is where people tend to cross the line and make every you a me. And so um, 
there's some question. We're going to get into this as we get into more of the specifics. But there's some good questions that we can ask when we come to a passage of Scripture that will help us handle it correctly. So, who's he speaking to? Who wrote it? What is he speaking about? Uh, what is there a command? Is there something that's rep- repeated? Those are just general observational type questions. And, and in doing that, say, for this one, we would easily and, and very quickly arrive at the context and the original meaning. And then we would need to go to the next step and say, okay, what does that tell me about God? What is that, how does that apply to my life? What can I take comfort in? What do I need to take corrective action about? And, and, I, and I love the application that you, uh, at some point in your journey, as you, when you wrote that note, whenever it was years ago, the Spirit of God said, look, it grieves God when I sin. The same way it grieved God when Israel turned away from Him, it grieves God when we turn away from Him individually. That's an application of an illustration that's given in that historical context. So, um, so let's go ahead and uh, uh, take a look here. I know we've only got 15 minutes left. So let's take a look where I promised we would talk about last week at the two different primary schools of thought, broadly speaking. I mentioned there are many different hermeneutics. Remember, hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, especially of the scriptures. So as we're talking about how to read and understand, we're talking about interpretation. There are a broad range of interpretive techniques, but broadly speaking, there are two that are in opposition to one another. We espouse what's called the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. You'll hear it referred to as LGH. It's the way language is intended to be interpreted. Literally, in other words, it's not, you don't need a CIA cryptologist to figure it out. It's, it's written in the way language is written. Words mean things, right? Not some code. Uh, grammatical, it's written using nouns and subjects and verbs. And historical, it's written within a historical context. So you need to understand that. The opposing view is called allegorical, which is goes by many different names, uh, uh, you know, but allegorical basically just says the meaning, the words on the page say one thing, but the meaning originates up here in my mind, that I can be creative with the words. I know he said this, but what it really means is this, and it's this mystical, it's often called mystical interpretation. Uh, back in the Reformation days, they called it in Latin, sensus plenior, fullest sense, or the hidden meaning. Let's look beneath you know, the, 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 the between the lines, beneath the words on the page, and try to come up with this sort of goosebump meaning that, that only God could somehow reveal to us supernaturally. That's not what we're talking about uh, here. So as it relates to these five categories, let's see where you end up if you practice one versus the other. The theological system uh, of the LGH methodology arrives at dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a biblical term. It comes right out of Ephesians 3. And it, it first and foremost is a hermeneutic. It's a method of interpreting Scripture. People often create this straw man and say, oh, dispensationalism, isn't that that theology that divides history into seven categories? No, no, that's not at all what dispensationalism is. In fact, dispensationalists often have different categories. It's the, the, the time periods are the result of doing the literal grammatical historical interpretation, not 
It, it's not the, the method or, or the uh, theology, theological system itself. Allegorical, on the other hand, practices what's called covenant uh, theology. And rather than seeing a distinction between Israel and the church, they believe the church has replaced Israel. And they don't because they, they go back and read the New Testament and the Old Testament. And when they see my people, they say that's the church. There's only one people of God. For a while it was called Israel, now it's called the church. But it's one people of God. But again, that ignores the context. They see, or we see the, the purpose of God in human history as doxological. They see it as anthropocentric. That is to say, they, we believe that the purpose of God in human history is to bring himself glory. They believe the purpose of God in human history is to redeem mankind. But they're missing the broader picture. Right? God is doing a lot more in human history than just redeeming me and you. We are the highest pinnacle of creation. We're the only created being that was made in the image of God. We certainly have a key role to play. But God has a plan for the planets and the stars and the trees and the animals and the demons and the angels. We know this just from reading Scripture. For example, Jesus said that the everlasting lake of fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared by whom? God. Which means God planned ahead of time when he put this whole plan of time, space, and matter together for something for these fallen angels. As it comes, relates to the end times, we believe in a literal earthly kingdom. But if you don't handle the word of God correctly and you allegorize scripture, then you come to no earthly kingdom. Kingdom means heart. And temple means, you know, this reigning in, the, in, in a subjective sense. And, uh, you know, everything is spiritualized and, and um, allegorized. As it relates to salvation, we arrive at the free grace position. Those who allegorize tend to arrive at a Calvinistic or Reformed uh, position. And this is because they, again, go to the Gospels that are talking about Israel and talking about discipleship and make those passages about how to have eternal life, how to get into heaven. And they don't see the context. Um, and by the way, um, I think we've talked about this before, but John MacArthur uh, who is a dispensationalist by and large, except when it gets to that fifth category of salvation. Then he shifts over into allegorical interpretation and arrives at a reformed view of the gospel. And that's why he himself calls himself, labels himself, a leaky dispensationalist. Because he's at least honest enough to know that he deviates from the literal grammatical historical interpretation. Right? Uh, but he believes in a literal earthly kingdom like we do. Uh, he sees a distinction between Israel and the church and so forth. But when he gets to the doctrine of salvation, he misses, uh, misses the point. So I want to at least introduce, and we'll come back to this next week, the, uh, the five steps in the Bible study process. Um, so we talked about this, for some of you that have been with us for a long time, we talked about this back when we did our series on uh, eternal security or somewhere in the discussion of the gospel, uh, but it's been quite a while. Um, so it starts with the Bible, okay? So unlike Eilif University or whatever it is, seminary, uh, which starts with a roundtable discussion, we believe that it should start with the Bible, right? Not a shrink wrap, you know, study by some author, but the Bible. Now, those are not wrong in and of themselves. They can be very helpful to, to buy a shrink wrap Bible study, you know, 
lesson, if you will, by some reputable uh, scholar and work your way through it. But it needs to be within the understanding that the Bible is the, the driving factor. The Bible is the ultimate standard, right? Not, you know, some other theologian. Uh, so you study the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical context. And really, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time in this series, is how do you do that? You know, what are some common mistakes that we make? And what are some rules that we should abide by? Uh, we're going to get into figures of speech and genre, things that I've already touched on. But you may be thinking, what does he mean by that? What do I mean when I talk about historical literature versus epistolary literature or wisdom literature? or gospel narratives, right, or apocalyptic literature. We're going to talk about that. It's pretty much common sense. And, you know, theologians have a great way of taking the simple and making it complicated. Uh, but we're going to try to make take the simple and keep it simple. But to just use an illustration in English, you, you know without even thinking about it. You know instinctively that when you pick up, you know, say, an instruction manual, on how to use, I just bought a couple more Midland uh, radios to go with the one that you had given me, and uh, it came with a manual, and so I was wanting to read it and kind of figure out some of the, I, I knew what I was reading, but I'm going to read that completely different than I would read if I pulled out of a box on the top shelf of my office of keepsakes that go back 33 years, and I pulled out an old love letter that my wife, girlfriend at the time, wrote me, and I'm going to read that. You better believe that I'm reading it totally different. It's different rules and, and different ways of engaging the text. You read a novel differently than you read nonfiction, right? And you read, you know, a newspaper differently than you would read a love letter, right? So that's all we're talking about when we talk about genre. But we're going to get into some of those things. But it starts with the Bible. Then you move to step two, which is to compare Scripture with Scripture. So it's expanding the context. Uh, and uh, Theologians, again, we always love to make the simple complicated. They call this the analogy of faith. But the meaning of that is simply that Scripture best interprets itself. So you can't have one meaning over here in one part of Scripture that contradicts a, another meaning over here in another part of Scripture. Because the Bible cannot contradict itself. So you, you expand the focus uh, it's what we call at step two cross-referencing. As we've talked about, if you have a study Bible that has notes in it, you'll often see little footnotes that will link you to other parts of Scripture. Because whoever wrote the notes in that Bible, whether it's the Charles Ryrie study Bible or whatever, they felt like these verses had a correlation. Right? That All they're doing is step two. All of our cross-references are just step two in my five-step process. That's all they are. So a famous book of cross-references is called The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. I highly recommend it. It doesn't necessarily mean that all the cross-references are valid. Some of them you may look at and go, ah, I wouldn't really have connected those verses, but it's a helpful tool. But you can, after dealing with the text in its context, then you expand the focus and get to compare Scripture to Scripture. And then at step three, this is where you formulate a clear belief statement. What does the Bible teach about fill-in-the-blank? So if you're reading a passage of Scripture, say Genesis 6, and it's talking about angels, and you want to do a comprehensive study 
about angels, you've got to look at everything the Bible has to say from cover to cover about angels. You can't just look at Genesis 6. In fact, one of the rules, uh, 24 rules of interpretation that we're going to discuss in this uh, series is that a doctrine can only be considered authoritative if it includes everything the Bible has to say on the subject. Okay. So a lot of bad theology is generated because people don't do their homework. They, they come at a big section of Scripture that deals with a particular topic, and they think, okay, here's my, here's my doctrine about that. And they fail to recognize, you know, uh, the Bible says a lot more that you really need to nuance it a little differently. So, basically, by the time you've done the first three steps, you have, you have worked through the meaning process, and you've created a doctrinal statement. And this is what, in the old days, churches used to have and Christian institutions used to have. And you could tell a lot about them by going to look at their doctrinal statement. I went to what we believe on the ILIF page, and it's all, all core values. There's not, nothing on there at all about the Bible, right? But you go to the Plum Creek website, you're going to find our doctrine. You're also going to find it in a brochure out in the lobby. Go to the Not By Works website, you're going to find our doctrinal statement. What do we believe about the Bible, about God, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about salvation, about discipleship, about angels, demons, and Satan, about the end times, and so on, all of those things. So, um, but presumably, if we've done the process correctly, you know, by the time we get to step three, we can have some firm belief statements. And the reason that's helpful is that when we go back and study the Scripture, Sometimes when we come to difficult passages, we can quickly rule some things out about meaning because we've already declared, based on the study of Scripture and handling it correctly, we've cut a straight line to a clear meaning. For example, the Bible is very clear that salvation is by grace through faith. That's a basic rudimentary teaching of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So if you come to a passage of Scripture that at first glance seems to make baptism a requirement to get to heaven, or which there's one passage that people often point to about that in Mark 16, or it seems to make good works required to get into heaven. Well, you can, you can, you can say, well, I need to study this a little more. I'm not exactly sure what's being said here. I need to do my homework and look at it in context and do some word studies. But I know it's not saying you have to do good works to be saved because that would violate all of this other scripture. So another one of the 24 rules of interpretation is we always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. Always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And I'm going to give you all these in one swoop over a couple of sessions when we get there. But, you know, when the Bible is clear, it's clear. Other passages are not going to turn the tables on something that is fundamentally clear. So this is the first three steps. When you get to through here, you've done the development phase. You've kind of arrived at meaning. It's a lifelong process. You can never get to a place where you say, okay, I can check that one off my list. It's constantly in a state of review. And as the Holy Spirit interacts with you and the Word of God and you're studying it, you may refine some of your views on some things. But that's not where this process stops. I mean, think about it. I've got five steps here, and we're only 60% of the way through the process. If you stop here, you know, forget the 84% club when it comes to end time study, you're a 60 percenter because you don't understand that what Bible study is all about. Because this next step, step four, is about evaluating the truth claims of the world through the lens of what you've discovered the Bible says. 
So you take this grid that you've developed at step three, and then you run all of the truth claims from any and every other source through that grid. And if it passes the test, then you say, okay, great. If it doesn't, then you reject it. It's called validating and invalidating the world's truth claims. So in other words, what we're saying here is that studying the Bible isn't simply to figure out what it means as an end unto itself. Studying the Bible is intended to give us a way to interact in this world full of sin and, and successfully navigate life. So it helps us differentiate between truth and error. But that's not the final step either. So then the final step is personal application. To apply what you have learned to your own life with a goal of a changed life. That's the goal. Every time we pick up the Bible, every time we come to church, every time we come to midweek service, we ought to be thinking, how is this going to mold and shape me? What parts need to be chiseled away to conform to the image of Christ? Um, and I can. And next week when we come back, I'll give you examples of real-life uh, anecdotal stories of people who have stopped at three or four or five or, or, or not gotten all the way to five. Um, so that's, that's the goal. And uh, that's where application really comes into play. Yeah. Will you touch on later on about the, the apply part where some verses, some, there's, a, there's a common thought out there is that you can't make everything about you on this, meaning your individual person. Like you mentioned, not me. Yeah. You. But sometimes it's not talking about you. You just talk about Israel or something specific. or Right. Possibly. And maybe you, what you pull out of it is, not how it changed your life, but wow, look how God worked with someone. Maybe he worked yeah. with me. Or look, if I respond the way this person responds, God will see that as a favor. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what we're talking about. So to go back to those two words that we're going to have a lot more to say about in the weeks to come, meaning versus significance or meaning versus application, Everything in yellow relates to meaning. What does the text say? What does it mean in its original context? Everything in green relates to application. So, for example, if I know, based on my study of uh, Scripture in the first three steps, that the Bible teaches the sanctity of life and that life begins at conception, then at step four I can say abortion is immoral. Right? That, I'm applying the principle of God's word to a real-life situation. Um, and, and if I wanted to go to step five, then, you know, no matter what, if I'm going to be consistent, I picked a bad, pretty heavy example. I should have picked a lighter example. But, you know, if, if let's, let's keep it uh, nonspecific. If one's daughter comes home at age 16 pregnant, abortion is not an option. Let's make it a little harder. If one's daughter at age 18 is raped and gets pregnant, abortion is not an option. Why? Because the Bible says life begins at conception and it's wrong to take an innocent human life. It's called murder. Right? So once you've established what the text says and means, then a whole other issue is application. And that's where it can become hard sometimes to apply it. And that's where the sanctification process really rests, is right there in step four and five. You know, 
I've known people that would be on the front lines defending the sanctity of human life until something personal in their life comes along and then they compromise, right? So, you know, this is, this is kind of what we're talking about. So uh, the yellow would be meaning, the, the green would be application or significance. Another way to say it is the yellow is the de de developmental phase of your, of your theology or your Bible study. But then the implementation phase is everything in green, right? We're going to take what we've learned from God's Word because, again, God's Word is profitable. How? Well, it, it, it makes us, uh, thoroughly equips us f for righteousness, right? Uh, and we're going to talk about that next week. All right, well, we're out of time for tonight, but good good discussion, good, good stuff. And... Um, Let's pick it up there next week. Hope you'll join us Sunday, either in person or by live stream if you are able. God bless.